Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this episode, which today is another installment in the Focus Researchers Talk. The Focus Researchers Talk is a bank of talk by those researchers who have enjoyed particular success in publishing their work. My guests on Researchers Talk tell us how they turn the data and the ideas into the many papers of impact which they have published. Today I'll be talking with David Evans, Professor of Computer Science, University of Virginia. David's research group focuses on understanding and improving the trustworthiness of machine learning, both from a privacy angle as well as from a security angle. Other areas of interest include secure multi-party computation and web security. So let's begin today's episode. David Evans on Researchers Talk. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So um, as I've announced before when we were talking, this is an interview that's not really about what you research, but really about how you do that research. And I break down this how into basically three different parts, the scientific network, the scientific reading, and the scientific writing. So maybe I'll take these just in order, just as I've uh, mentioned them. So the scientific network is, in my opinion, basically the social side of science. So the people you work with, the people you collaborate with, correspond with, meet with, solve problems with, whatever. Um, If I bring up this notion as a particularly important component inside of your research communication, does, does that jibe with you? Does that make sense? It does. I think nearly all research these days is collaborative to different degrees. There, there are very few single author papers. Um, I haven't had one since uh, I had one in my whole career, basically back when I was a grad student. So so all work is, is some kind of collaboration. Um, and that can vary a lot what that means. And definitely, you know, I value and like to work in small teams often where it's just me and maybe another faculty member working with a graduate student. And then some projects end up building larger collaborations and benefiting from uh, being able to work with people that work in different areas and have different talents. This is precisely why this podcast is being held. It's to get get experience from people like you who've been successful in, in teams, different size teams as well, and to pass on some of the advice, some of the experience that you've had. So you mentioned they're liking to work in small teams, also having been in larger collaborations could you perhaps characterize from your own experience, what's the difference there for you? How does it affect the research? And, and, and what are the effects that it has maybe on the entire communication process? So I mostly view things through that perspective as a PhD advisor and wanting my students to develop as independent researchers. Um, and that means that you know, as PhD students, they should be leading projects. And my role as an advisor is, is to advise, to help coordinate, to help ask the right questions, help them find the right things to work on that are exciting to them and, and interesting to me and interesting to the community. Um, and when it's a project where it's kind of led by a PhD student, that can grow into a larger collaboration. Um, other kinds of projects, that, and I definitely have been involved in projects that sort of end up with large teams being formed. Um, there, it's harder, you know, it's harder to understand what everyone's role is sometimes. Um, and I think it's really important for PhD students as they are focusing most of their time on developing as independent researchers to have both kinds of experience to have the experience where they're leading a project and potentially collaborating with other people to help and getting, um, advice from, from me as an advisor and, and getting help and advice from other senior researchers, but largely leading a project and having control of it. And then being part of larger teams, um, often led, you know, often it works out where a, a new PhD student will join a project that's led by a more experienced PhD student, um, but also forming collaborations with colleagues at other universities, um, and in, in industry research groups. To a PhD student, what would be the sorts of advice that you would give in these two separate sort of roles that you're talking about? They're related, but but certainly different. This idea that they're either leading the collaboration themselves or they're contributing to it under somebody else's leadership. How, How would you steer PhDs in the right direction there on those two different roles? 
So I think it's important to be good in both roles uh, and to understand which role, like definitely as a project lead, there is uh, sort of the, the vision aspects of it, but also the how do you get other people to work with you in the right way. Um, as a non-lead, there's definitely figuring out how to contribute in ways that advance the project with the understanding that someone else is leading it. Um, and I think you know, those are skills that some people naturally have and others have to work on and develop and um, be in situations where they, they see things from both sides and realize that you know, when, once you've had the experience of leading a project, it's a lot easier to see what kinds of contributors are helpful and how to, you know, ideally you end up with collaborations where everyone feels a large stake in the project and is contributing well to it. And it's not a sort of leader and followers kind of arrangement, but you still need a leader to put all the pieces in place and make sure things move forward in the right way. And perhaps also somebody who has, I think you even mentioned there the word vision. So understands the research goals, because I could imagine that certain collaborators excited about the expertise that they're bringing in could bring the project off the rails by maybe bringing in experiments that were irrelevant or widening the question to the degree that it, it doesn't really fulfill this particular project anymore. Is, are these problems that might arise? These can be challenges, yeah. And I think it's often when teams grow and have multiple senior researchers, uh, sometimes with a little bit of confusion of who's actually leading the project, that you end up with... Um, a, a team that's working together, but maybe with different people having a different idea of what the overall goal is and what the agenda is. And, and sometimes that, you know, that research is hard to predict. And often you start with one idea and as you do experiments and develop it, you realize that's not the right idea. We should do something else. And then different people on the team might have different ideas about what the, the right direction. And in a great collaboration, that's what you want. You want to be able to have those discussions and have different ideas and be able to sort of think about them as a group and decide what to explore and how to explore it. Um, it can go off the rails. It can be, a, you know, a, a, and this is where being selective and finding people that you enjoy working with and know that you can have these kinds of disagreements and discuss them in a objective way and end up um, hopefully agreeing on a path that everyone's happy with without any kinds of personal animosity or sort of disputes where people are starting to take sides. And I think most of the research community works really well. Um, it's rare for there to be problems, uh, but when there are problems that makes everyone unhappy and unpleasant and uh, you know, it, it can happen. And it can happen just because people have different ideas for what they want to do. And a collaboration that started with one goal ends up going in another direction. Um, and those are the things that I think are, can be tricky to manage, um, but I, I think are very rare. And most of our community works together really well. But you saying that uh, just in that way, describing actually how I'm imagining also from experience. I mean, these are the things that people know because they've, they've, they've experienced them to a PhD student that you're advising. I think this will already be for some people, especially early career research is a bit of an eye opener because the entire research collaborative process is, it's not something that they've really done yet. And I mean, figuring out the people's side to a project is, is going to be essential to the success of the project. Agreed. Yeah. And I think starting with small teams, starting where either a, a, new PhD, a new PhD student would join a project led by a more senior PhD student in the group and where their role is very clear and well-defined, um, or they'd start right away leading their own project. And that would be a project where it's probably just the PhD student and me as the advisor, or I often like to have co-advisors. So uh, another faculty member with different expertise, but where it's very clear you know, this is the student's project. Um, I think managing more complicated collaborations is often something that students benefit from later in their career after they've had a few successes with small uh, projects where it was just them uh, yeah, as the lead with um, help from advisors, but uh, with that. And often um, it works out well. We have outstanding undergraduates at UVA getting undergraduate students involved. And that's a way often PhD students will start to get some of the management side of things um, and ways of working with others where they're the one in charge because most 
new PhD students yeah, have not been in a situation very often where they're the one in charge. This this potential to collaborate also with uh, undergraduate uh, students of of sorts or maybe even masters uh, students is is an interesting point because it, it brings me on to another side of the scientific network that doesn't always come up in my conversations with researchers because I think in science there's so much competition that the research sometimes trumps the learning side to the scientific network. I mean, very many of us like you are at universities, so there's teaching that goes on, but I think. There's a view in some corners, uh, and again, motivated by the competition in science that writes the learning side to all of this. You know, I'm thinking of lecturing seminars, exams, supervision, uh, PhD defenses is somehow secondary to, you know, the next great paper, the impact of the research. Um, I'm hearing from you that you have, you have a different view on this, that your, your view of the scientific network involving teaching is, is th- these things relate very symbiotically. I hope so. I think it's definitely, you know, and I've started to, you know, my career, I started in security, I actually started in software engineering and programming languages and moved into security. Now a lot of the work is in the machine learning community. Um, there is a level of competition and I think it's particularly severe in the machine learning community that can be counterproductive to both good science and learning and collaboration. So I think researchers, and it's especially tough for ones earlier in their career, have to figure out how to balance that. That um, they you know need to realize that yeah that there is a competitive aspect to it, and people are you know fighting over credit in ways that can be kind of unseemly and you would really like everyone to be motivated by learning and advancing science and not so concerned about who gets credit for what. Um, it's also the case, you know, for a new researcher to build their career, they have to be visible and getting credit for things. So it is something that I think you, you need to balance. Um, but with the, everyone hopefully is well aligned with the goal that, that the most important thing are, um, learning and developing as individual researchers and advancing the science in the ways that we want. Yeah, this balance is exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, maybe to be more concrete, if you, if you had a PhD, a PhD student in, in machine learning and security who, let's say, really was excelling and saw the potential of you know creating great impact uh, with their research and started to take more negative view to, let's say, certain teaching or advising roles that they may have to take on. Uh, what, 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 what might you then say to them or how might you act toward them to, to correct that balance, let's say? So the thing I would most worry about, I, I think there can be a lot of frustration in students do great work, submit something to a conference and it gets rejected. And sometimes it gets rejected because reviewers, you know, don't understand things or maybe, you know, just aren't seeing the value that, that we see in the work. Um, and that can be a frustrating experience, especially if it's sort of not offset by enough previous successes where people realize that, yeah, there, there is some unpleasantness and randomness and suffering in this publication process, but it usually eventually works out and that the good works will get published. Um, And there's a fear, and and I think there is a a natural reaction to that of saying, well, the the goal is to get the works published, not to do the good science and write the the good papers and communicate well with the community um, and to try to focus on the things that will get work through a review process rather than what's important for doing good science. Um, And I think that's, that's a difficult challenge and it's definitely is important for students to publish it's important for people to build their research record um and the you know this this i hope doesn't come across as becoming uh, overly cynical and nostalgic i think back in the early days when i started as a researcher these things were very well aligned that the things that you had to do to succeed as a researcher and to, to publish well um were very much doing good science and communicating it well um, I think those things are still somewhat aligned, but much less well aligned than they once were. And so there is more of a, a temptation and a need to sort of realize that in the long run, doing good science and communicating well are what will make someone successful and, and what will pay off. Um, in the short run, 
it's important to sort of realize that sometimes those things are not completely aligned and there's temptation to cut corners or do do things focused on just getting through a re- review process rather than what would be most important for in advancing the science and communicating well. And communicate relating to community. I mean, that is, you know, a person's future career, perhaps. So, I mean, a couple a couple of papers that, you know, got churned out quickly and, and at least gathered a few citations and, and boosted a person's, you know, initial, let's say, tenure review or something like that. that that's not the end of, of their career. Um, I, you, you made a, a, a bit back there an interesting connection between being able to collaborate. I think you were making that connection, maybe implicitly being able to collaborate and also being able to teach or learn. So, it would seem to me that, you know, that, that is also one takeaway skill. If you're somebody who engages with students or with mentoring opportunities and so on, that you may turn out to be a better collaborator and therefore you would have better projects in the future. Yeah, I think teaching is a huge part of it and teaching means lots of different things. It can be sort of the classroom teaching, sorry, the classroom teaching um, and a lecture, but it can also be the, the one-on-one mentoring and it can be, you know, I view much of writing papers and in communicating research is also about teaching. It's trying, you know, there's the novelty and the new results that you're getting across, but there's also a teaching aspect to it. So I think anyone who's wanting to be a researcher has to want to teach. And that doesn't necessarily mean everyone has to want to be a classroom teacher or teach, uh, you know, in the more traditional way, but being a researcher is largely about teaching. That actually brings us then very nicely, segues us nicely over into the idea of scientific writing. Um, You talked uh, about writing together papers with um, PhDs and and getting them to appreciate the communication there. I know that um, some researchers will also take on their doctoral researchers in their own review process so that they understand how to review papers that haven't yet been published, that they can get a sense of judgment of good and bad research and and know how to also create their own reviews produce their own reviews is do you see this as also a teaching moment in the writing of science so i think it is very important to read and understand and be critical of as well as appreciative of things that other research papers do well Um, so i'm certainly expecting PhD students and uh, early students, anyone getting an interest in research as well as experienced senior researchers should always be reading papers. And when you're reading papers, you can be reading to, to learn, to learn sort of new technical topics and to understand what the researchers did. But there's also sort of the meta level of that of your reading to understand how the paper was written. And often that um, kind of is noticing things that could have been done better, but it's also noticing things that were done well. Um, and I, I do often, you know, I definitely expect PhD students um, and, and any researchers, this um, includes undergraduates that get started in my research group, to read papers and to be able to, um, and this doesn't mean writing a formal review sort of as part of a review process, but be able to get something from the paper, explain it as well as to think about things that like why the researchers did things the way they did and what alternatives and maybe there was something better that they could have done it's also a starting point for thinking about what's what's the next research idea that we want to pursue is often going to be driven by understanding what other researchers have done in a a paper yeah i mean what you're talking about there with the the reading is is (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's, it's very interesting. It, it's really more into this idea of scientific reading that I talk about, which we might as well just as, as well go with, because when I've, I, I help um, uh, PhD students here in Germany at uh, the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology to, uh, to communicate their science. And what I often hear when it comes to reading papers, especially in their first year or so of their, their PhD, is that they'll really read them thoroughly sort of like cover to cover, if you like. And then they'll meet up with their advisor and the advisor will say one or two things that makes them realize, hey, that's almost like another paper. 
<laughs> like as if they had spent all that attention on the paper and yet they missed the main point, which the advisor just was able to extract in two sentences, let's say. Um, this this is obviously a learning curve, isn't it? To get into what does it mean to read a paper and see what is the science there? What is the real meat of the question? Yeah, and I think people usually don't learn how to read. Like we learn how to read in you know, elementary school and it's very linear, right? You learn how to read a book and you're supposed to read every word from the beginning to the end. And maybe if you learn how to read well, part of that is also thinking as you go along and at each you know break or transition, understanding what, what's happening in the story or the nonfiction book, whatever you're, you're reading. I think reading research papers is really different than reading science. And, and sometimes it does pay off and make sense to read the whole paper you know in a linear way from the beginning to the end. But very rarely is that what I would do. Like I'm much more reading the abstract than often looking for a figure because images are nice and often tell the story well, and then trying to understand what's in that figure and then, um, reading other parts of the paper. And, you know, I think the, a well-written paper, the, the introduction should be enough to get the story across and to really understand what the motivation for the research was and what was done and what the key results were. Um, and so a a well-written paper, definitely I would want to read the introduction, uh, but then oftentimes it's going to be much more useful. And and if I'm kind of deciding, like I often sort of, there's so much published these days, right? There's thousands of papers um, every week. You can't read them all. And even in a fairly narrow area, there are far more papers than you can read. So one of the things that's necessary is to have a, a triage process to very, quickly decide what's worth looking at a little bit. And then from looking at something a little bit to decide what's reading more thoroughly. Um, and then in my case, that's often suggesting a PhD student read it more thoroughly, uh, and sort of then try to really get it an understanding of what the deep ideas in the paper are and whether the results mean what the authors thought they meant and how to interpret it and, and where to go from there. But it's a, it is a very, different type of reading than what most people learn in school. And I don't think, you know, as a community, we don't, I've, I've only a few times in my career have I actually done a class on how to read, how to read a paper. Um, and it's something that I think many, you know, I, I, when I work individually with grad students, I try to help with that and give a sense, but it's something that is very rarely a structured part of um, anyone's education today. And it's something that I, I think people pick up, but there's actually probably a lot that people could pick up a lot quicker and we could be taught better how to read. Um, and this sort of sense of, yeah, you're supposed to read every word in a linear way that most people learned when we learned reading in grade school and feel like that's what it means to read is not very helpful for reading scientific papers. I wholeheartedly agree. In fact, that's the reason why I've I've come out with this term scientific reading to, to give that counterweight to scientific writing, to recognize that it's done differently. And I think there is a strong bias in the education system towards literature. And I, I like how you say that linear reading, so savoring every word and so on. And and, and what gets lost there is, you know, technical writing scientific text and so on, writing that is meant to advance knowledge is serving a purpose, an extremely important purpose, but it's a tool that needs to be used in a certain way. I'd be very interested to hear maybe a a word or two about the class there that you gave or the classes that you've given at times to read a paper, because I I think this is essential stuff. So so I can tell, tell, and this was many years ago, um, and it was a... Uh, course that was actually taught by an undergraduate at, at UVA and she wanted someone come in, you know, they were going to start reading research papers and these were mostly undergraduate students in the course wanted some guidance, how to do that. Um, and so I, I led one session and we actually used, and, and this may be a little reflective of our biases at UVA, um, Thomas Jefferson's, the declaration of independence as our example of 
here's a research paper to read. And it's not quite a research paper uh, and it's short, but it, it has a structure to it that is actually not that different from many research papers um, and talked about kind of how you would read that as a scientific paper versus the linear way people tend to read and kind of what, what sort of, I think there is a very much a synergy between writing and reading that you're reading um, papers in a way that the writers expect them to be read. And you're writing in a way that acknowledges how you expect the readers to read. Um, And that still requires, it should make sense if read in a linear way, because that is the main structure, but it should also be something where someone who wants to quickly understand and know what parts to go in depth on is going to know how to find them. Um, and is going to be able to use the the both the conventions that they already know about how papers tend to be structured and what you tell them in the abstract and the introduction to be able to know what's in the paper, know how to find things, know which parts are worth reading in a lot of depth for what they're interested in. And then, you know, I think there's a sense of if it's a scientific paper, it should be most scientific papers are making some claim uh, and you hope that claim is clear and you can understand what it is from the abstract. And then, you know, the real goal as a reader, well, there's, there's one goal is to understand, do you believe them? Have they done what's necessary to support that claim and make it convincing? And the other goal is often, what can we learn from this technically that might inform work that we're doing or help us understand or be useful in um, projects that we might already be involved in or thinking about future projects. So I think those are two quite different goals and the structure of the paper helps you figure out what parts to read for what goal. And, you know, if it's a well-written, well-organized paper, it should all hang together in a way that makes sense. Um, but as a reader, you often have specific things you want to get from the paper that aren't best served by reading the paper in order. What you say there is... It's really fascinating, really interesting stuff, and I'm, I'm glad you broke out uh, the Declaration of Independence as well. And, and, Great uh, example of writing. It, it's it's wonderful. It's wonderful text for sure. Um, but but what you have to say there about the idea that in scientific texts, you're as a reader discerning author purposes, and as an author, you're really trying to make those purposes clear to the reader. This there's, there's this level of cooperation that somehow mirrors the scientific community where if literature is the base of the way that you're teaching people how to read, I, I would say the community in literature is more writer-based. The onus tends to fall on, if you think of poetry, for example, as an extreme example, the onus tends to fall on the reader to figure it out. And it's writers who are sort of, you know, not competing so much, but at least participating with other writers in this thing we call poetry. Do you, do, do you see what I'm driving at there? I do. And I think it's a, it's a great analogy. And if you think of the way, you know, people, and I, I can't claim to be an expert in this, but people who write literature learn to write, they read the great works, right? They look, read authors, they read the classic authors, they read modern authors, they read a lot, and they read in a way to learn how other authors write. We don't do that in scientific writing, right? We very rarely read great works for the sake of seeing how um, that a, a great work was written. We, and, and this is, I think, especially dire in the machine learning world, people read papers that were posted, you know, within the last week or two on archive and anything older than that is kind of old. We've moved on. It's not worth reading older papers. Um, and, and I think that, that's uh, maybe overcharacterizing the reality, but there's a lot of lot to learn from reading the classic papers and looking both at how these ideas were developed when they were developed. That um, we've often sort of assumed that we understand them now, and they've gone through so many phases of reinterpretation, and rarely go back to the original papers. Um, and I think there's a, a lot to also learn that you know, in terms of thinking of it more the way people think of great literature of, you know, these are examples of how a scientific paper can be written in a clear, compelling, exciting way. And we can learn from looking at those examples. You're not the first guest on this uh, 
program to actually suggest going back to classic papers, really digging back to the source of ideas. Um, I, I, one, one, one guest here brought it up because of the fact that it can lead to new research because very often an idea gets changed from its origin and you notice new potential in the idea. But, but what you're talking about, this more communication related, which I'm thankful for because that's the purpose of this podcast, this more communication related idea of figuring out from the classic paper how best to express these ideas in what context to couch them and how to really come up with a you know, a pithy research question related to these topics. I mean, these are, yeah, essential tasks that, that every author faces again and again each time, aren't they? They are. And and I think you know, there's, there's a lot that, you know, we, we don't want to do disposable research, right? And so much of what's done now is very much serving a purpose, getting an idea across. Um, and it's something that's going to sort of live for three months till the next the next iteration, um, and, and that is that, that's you know incremental advances are important, and that's how research areas make progress. But there's you know a handful of breakthrough results over the decades that I think we can learn a lot from and benefit from both understanding how the researchers got to those results, um, but often the presentation is also really important and valuable as well. One last question that I'd like to, which is a slightly different direction, um, more about habits uh, when it comes to scientific reading, because that's another thing. I mean, when you're writing and people talk about scientific writing, it, it's like it's something that you can measure. You know, you've produced so many words. You've finished in the deadline time. You, um, you know, you, you have a daily habit of writing and you see the results there. When it comes to reading, it's of course more ephemeral, right? It, it comes and it goes. And it's also kind of one of those things that people perhaps can feel that they can cut shorter on because of other interruptions. I mean, a scientist's life is busy and there's just a million whistles and bells going off all the time to get your attention. And and I, I, I guess the question that I'm, I'm driving at from a very distant position is is basically through all of that noise that is in your daily life how is it that you establish a sort of routine of reading and and how do you maybe also to your phd students pass on that that importance of that task so so i'll get to that i want to remark on something you said earlier about that the measuring progress in writing in terms of numbers of words produced um and it reminds me of a comment and I think it was from Jim Horning about the way to measure progress in code is how much you've deleted. And I view the same thing in writing. If, if you can measure progress by words deleted rather than words added, that's a, a good sign of progress. Although I guess that assumes you're starting with a lot of words to begin with. Um, but to get to that's the question of habits, and I, I, I don't, you know, I think habits um, can be very helpful to have routines. Um, I also think it's good to break out of routines. Uh, and a lot of, you know, my own reading is very, so that the routine I do have, which I follow pretty closely is, you know, I get the daily email from archive of papers posted in the area that I selected, which is, um, computer security. I think they worded something, maybe cryptography and security, um, which unlike machine learning is still small enough that you can kind of. Uh, skim through the list of papers every day. And from that list, you know, it's got the titles and abstracts. There might be a few papers that it's worth clicking on and deciding if they're worth reading. Um, and then I add them to a queue of papers that I plan to read someday and often never get to things on that queue, but at least I am aware of these papers existing from that. Um, and then there's sort of papers that are more, I mean, there's, I don't want to say obligatory because nothing's really obligatory as, as a professor, which is one of the appeals of the job. But like, if you've, you're on a program committee you have papers, you have to read as a reviewer, um, or papers my students are working on and I'm collaborating with, those are definitely more, um, sort of structured need to be read carefully and involved in the, the reviewing aspects of that. Um, and trying to spread out that schedule into how blocks of time to do that reading. 
Um, often that's, that's more later in the day for me. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that the habits, in, and I think individuals come up with their own, uh, own habits that work for them. Uh, I think it is important for students to keep up with what's going on in their research area. It's harder and harder to do that because the number of papers and the different venues they can appear. Um, uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the time when the research community was small enough and the conferences were small enough that you could kind of be expected. And it was reasonable to look at all the major papers in the major, all the papers in the major conferences, because that was only, you know, 20 papers in the conference. And there were in security, you know, four conferences a year. And it was pretty manageable to look at all of them and read the ones in that were related to the areas that you're interested in um, most closely. That's not possible anymore. There are hundreds of papers in each conference and thousands of papers in the machine learning conferences. Um, so you've got to have a, a way to triage and identify papers that are worth reading um, and, and figure out, like, I think it's usually more valuable to read in a very shallow way, a, a large number of papers, and then a very small number to read in a lot of depth than to try to read a lot of papers in medium depth. We've covered now um, scientific reading, scientific networks, and we've even been talking a little bit now about scientific writing. It's it's mixed in there, unsurprisingly, the reading and the writing uh, belong together. Um, uh, but to close out our, our interview, I would like to focus a little bit now more on the writing side of things. So, for example, this is a bit random, but um, you did mention introductions earlier, and this is a typical sort of introduction thing. I very often hear from supervisors that they, when they send maybe a PhD student my way, that they say things like, the research goals are kind of all over the place. I can't find a question here. There, there's no hypothesis. And, and these sorts of things turn up typically in an introduction. Um, I, I wonder if, A, this is something that you also sympathize with or experience, and, and B, what is it that you do to help there, um, to, to give advice there to, to PhD students? So my goal is to get to a clear story. The introduction should have one story. It should be clear why the work's being done, what was done, and what the results are. And if you have a story that you can express, and I think often trying to express the story verbally rather than in writing, some balance between those two, but there, there should be a story that you can express in a minute or less that gets across the point of the paper. What's what's the reason this exists and why we want to um, tell this story. Um, getting that into writing is a, often a different skill. Um, and so there's being able to understand what the story is. If you don't have a clear story in your mind and a way to express it, then it's not going to become clear in writing. Uh, but sometimes the effort of writing things does help make that story clear. Uh, and I think it's, it is a challenge to climb up from the, you know, the technical work, the students are deep in the weeds and the, you know, everyone who's doing the research is trying lots of things to solve some problem. Um, and it's easy to think that, well, that's what I spent all my time on. You know, I spent hundreds of hours getting this thing to work and now I got it to work. I, you know, that's kind of what I think of as the main point of the work was what I spent most of my time on. Um, but the real point of the work is not determined by what you spent your time on. It's determined by what is it that's going to be of value to a reader and what's the, the scientific advance here. And the, the better you can get that to sort of a clear, simple story uh, that is easy to understand, that is streamlined to the point where, you know, these are the only things that you really need to get to that story. Um, and then the technical details do matter. Uh, you're going to have space in the paper or at least in the, uh, in machine learning, it tends to be in the appendices because the papers are so short where you can get to all the, the hard technical issues that were what you spent tons of time figuring out. Um, and that's hard to give up because students, uh, well, anyone who's done the work and put that effort into it feels like that's what pe- other people should care about. But thinking about the story and what the message of the paper is, is really the key and getting that across in the um, most direct way possible. 
the things you say there, especially about the technical details, I, I find are really pertinent because I think just this process that you've described, you know, all, all these things I've spent my time on, all of this research activity, let's call it, and that as then when you turn into the author, you know, that seems to be what's important. And and yet the research activity doesn't show up in the paper in the same way that the paper matters, right? I mean, the paper is, as, as you've used the word there, telling us a story or even more particularly, it's it's giving the community something of value. And yes, okay, you've spent a very long time perhaps building something, but all of that time and all of those things that you did, they're not the valuable part, are they, right? I mean, it's the idea. Yeah, and sometimes that process is actually interesting, right, and worth writing about. And, and I think people are often reluctant to talk about sort of the things that you try that fail. And we have a, a bias as a scientific community to not write about failures. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah sorry for, for interrupting. I, I, I think that, that there is a sort of way to figure out how to tell the story of getting the, the message across. And then maybe there there is value to the, here's the things that we tried and our understanding of them and where we got. Um, but usually we don't have that kind of narrative in scientific papers. Yeah, no, sure. That's that's also very much the idea. I mean, it's what the paper wants or what, what a paper is meant to be doing, right? I mean, as, as you say, in the appendix, there's plenty of room for um, details and, and, and perhaps, yes, in some communities, there should be more attention paid to, let's call them negative results, because that could be just as useful as it might be, you know, a dead end in the way that something was being constructed. Uh, that might be useful to the next person who perhaps thinks, oh, that's the way forward, for sure. So, but if we think of, you know, the place where the research gets motivated, where we have those, as I started off with the advisor saying, I, I can't quite figure out why you're doing what, where, where is the research question here and so on. In that place in the paper, you know, a different part of you is being asked of. Isn't that so? Yes. Yeah. Getting that story across and in security research and m most of the work that I do is in security and privacy it's almost always clarified by having a threat model. Right? So, so if it's not clear to a reader by the end of the introduction, what your assumptions about the adversary are and what the adversary's goals are, then it's not, it's at least as a security paper, it's not done its job to motivate the work. Um, and I think that's something where getting that story clear is, is, often the most important thing, even if that's not necessarily what you're spending most of your time on doing the actual research. And you, you say that a lot of this can come out through talk meetings, I imagine, with the other co-authors or with you as the advisor and so on. Um, you made a while back in our interview just now um, this distinction between reading a paper to learn and then on a meta level, reading it to figure out how it was communicated. And I, with my, uh, with the researchers that I work together with, uh, try to also bring that talk into writing. So to sort of shorten the distance between the final paper and, you know, the thinking that goes into it. So a kind of writing to think before they go and actually write to communicate, which is the paper itself. Um, is this a method that you've perhaps worked with yourself or, or something that you, you know, could imagine passing on? Yeah, I think it's it's both. Um, a, as people become more senior and as PhD students get close to graduating, I expect them to be able to get an idea across to me by writing the paper, uh, as opposed to getting the idea across by having meetings and sort of discussing it and working through it, and then figuring out how to write the paper. So being able to communicate by writing alone, which is an important part of science, because most of the people that are going to be hopefully impacted by our work, we're not going to have a chance to talk to you in person. So, so that's a skill that I think it is very hard to get ideas across just in writing, but is something that uh, is important to develop. And, and it is a part of how to develop the ideas to try to write it down and to realize that, you know, if, if you've learned to be a critical reader of your own writer, uh, sorry, a critical reader of your own writing, then as you write down an idea, you're thinking about here's all the, the steps that don't make sense or what's missing or 
what a skeptical reader would ask about, do these points actually make the argument that you're trying to make? And so that process of actually writing out an idea and reading it, uh, looking at that as a critical reader would, and thinking about, well, does my story make sense here, um, is really valuable. And I think that's part of how research is done is, is to have, you know, you can do that with another person having a conversation. Um, uh, but oftentimes, well, either the, the, the right other person's not available um, or it, it requires sort of time and in-depth thinking that someone can do on their own. Um, but even if it's done on your own, you're still thinking of it as a conversation in terms of you are questioning yourself and you can be questioning yourself as you write things. And that that's one of the more explicit ways to do it is to try to write something down and then think of it as a critical reader. What are the things that don't make sense or the gaps in this story? And that's um, you know a good way to really work out ideas. And the process that you're describing there is, it's obviously putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. It's like taking on that other perspective, the critical reader, as as you call the person. And I think this might be one of the challenges, especially for people who are early in their PhD career, um, that they face because you can see here the real interconnection between reading and writing experience. Because being able to take on that critical reader stance means you have a good sense of the literature, doesn't it? I mean, you have a sense of you've become that reader because you've read so much. So you are able to, in a sense, divide up research technicalities from research, broader research goals or what the community cares about at the moment. I think it's, it's actually much harder to be self-critical than to be critical of others. Uh, I find that most like first year PhD students have no problem reading a paper and ripping it to pieces. Right. It's, it's very easy. And it's something that when I've run seminars, it's always like you, you want it to happen to some extent, but you also want to say like, let's not just spend all our time ripping kind of details of what someone else has done because that misses the value of it. Um, so I think it, it is, I mean, most people are naturally quite good at sort of being critical of others. It's much harder to look at your own work and your own writing in the same critical eye. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think so. Um, I, I think what what I'm trying to say is that you you also, though, through reading a lot of other papers, get a sense of some sort of intended reader out there, don't you, in a way? And, and I think that that is part of the reason why people, particularly early in their career, miss how it is that they need to formulate a goal that's larger than just the research technicalities because they, they haven't taken, they haven't understood that role yet of that critical reader. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's, that's a skill that people develop and most people are naturally very impatient readers um, and carrying that same impatience into their own writing uh, as as they read their own writing is is really important. Well, to close out, Dave, um, one purpose of this podcast is just generally to help the research. So that means help authors submit better, help chairs or editors publish better, reviewers make better decisions, and so on. We've talked also a lot about teaching, help people teach better. If there's any one group or any one thing happening out there in the research that you say, hey, if we could just do this one small change or a big change, whatever it might be, um, to help the research, what would it be? What would be that thing that you would select and, and why? Uh, well, that's a, that's a hard question. I'm not sure I can point to one change that if I had the power to make everything change, I, I, I'll, 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 I'll cheat on the question and mention what I think has been the most successful change that, that I've been able to do in my career was the introduction of the systematization of knowledge papers. So our, our community tends to really value novelty. Um, and we should, right? Research is about having new ideas and doing new things and getting them uh, moving science forward that way. Um, but a lot of the way to move science forward doesn't necessarily depend on novelty. It depends on understanding better what we think we know and what's been done in the past. And so we introduced at IEEE Security and Privacy um, a track of papers that 
are uh, intended to systematize knowledge, right? They're, they're evaluated not based on novelty, but based on are you advanced, you know, providing something of value to the research community that helps us understand what's known about this and looks at, you know, do we really know what we think we know? Um, and so that has spread to a few other communities. I think if that could spread to more communities, um, I would say, especially machine learning, where I think it's really needed. Um, and it's both sort of kind of that there's a culture of saying we want to value work that is trying to understand what's been done and doing careful evaluations and looking at things that maybe we think we know that are not actually true. Um, if you look at them more carefully and things that, that we actually do have a lot of evidence for, um, but we don't put it together in the right way because all of our research communities are focused on novelty. So I, I guess I'm, I am sort of answering your question in, in a backward way of saying, I think this has been successful in the security community and it's spread to a few other communities. Um, if it could spread in, or something similar could be adopted in communities that are only focused on novelty and not necessarily um, making progress and giving people, you know, I think it's very helpful to new researchers to be able to say, well, I, I want to understand what the research community knows about this topic. And here's an SOK paper that um, does summarize that and provides both, you know, a, a way to think about it and organizes that work as well as understanding what the open questions are. So that, I think if um, if that could be done across more communities, I think that would be beneficial. And you know, I think there's been some success in spreading SOK to, to other venues, but mostly connected with security and privacy. Well, that's very much in the spirit of, of the question and, and, a, and a great answer. Thank you very much for that, Dave. That is David Evans. He is professor of computer science, University of Virginia. This is goodbye from me to Dave. Goodbye. All right. Very, very nice talking to you. Thank you. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on this focus of the podcast, researchers talk.